You know, being a disciple of the Dartmouth Atlas and all the work here, um, this is sort of a pilgrimage for me to, to come here to, to Dartmouth. And uh, that's why when last night I got to have a fantastic dinner hearing, meeting some of the hospitalists and residents and medical students, um, I'm just so impressed uh, that, you know, Jason and Lynn are just casually, the medical students are just casually dropping like, oh yeah, when I took a, a class with uh, Gilbert Welch or, um, you know, uh, Elliot Fisher. So it's a, it's a special place to be. Um, and I am happy to be here. But I want to start by thinking back uh, to being an intern, actually, at UCSF. And uh, many, I was talking to the new interns here today who are, who are probably trying to finish up their pre-rounds to run to get over here. And as I was running around, I was really struck by sort of all the things that we started, that we were doing in the hospital that didn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. So for instance, I rotated through the emergency department um, in the first few months of my internship. And I was excited to be down in the emergency room. You know, it was after having been on the wards, I was down sort of felt like I was really there in the front lines. I was meeting uh, new, new people. And I remember one case, and it stuck with me, but not for the reasons that most cases stick with us during our training. And this was, I picked up a chart. We had charts. It wasn't that long ago, but we had paper charts in the PD. And I picked up a chart, and it said, 28-year-old man with headache. And as I started to stroll over to his room, I began thinking and ticking through all the terrible ER headache scenarios. You know, thinking of masses and bleeds and infections. And I'm determined that whatever terrible thing brought this young man into my ER, I was going to figure it out and help him out. And I walk in the room, and I see this young man. You know, he looks a little uncomfortable. The lights are off. But otherwise, totally normal, healthy-looking 28-year-old guy. But I think, no, I'm going to figure out what's going on. I start talking to him. I uh, ask him a bunch of questions. And the more I ask him, the more it sounds like he's having just a totally normal headache. But I rule out more red flags. I think about, you know, I'm asking about risky behaviors, and I'm asking about fevers, and it sounds like a migraine. I do my neuro exam. I actually, you know, bust out the whole exam. I, I really do the exam. <laughs> and it's totally normal. So I think, huh. This kid's got a migraine. I go to stroll back to talk to my attending, thinking I'm going to really impress this attending who I'm just meeting. And I start telling him about all the red flags I've ruled out, about the neuro exam that I've done. I say, you know, I think this young man has a migraine. My plan is to reassure him, give him symptomatic treatment, and send him home. And the attending just kind of looks at me and scratches his chin and says, huh, but are you going to scan him? I said, no, I don't think so. And he said, 
But this young man came to our emergency room with a headache. He's going to want a CT scan. You better just get the CT scan. So I thought, OK. I go and I whisk, you know, I sign my name and, and write for a CT scan. And off he goes. And you know, a little bit while later, he comes back from the scanner. Of course, it's totally normal. And I send him on his way. And no one seemed to flinch. No one questioned this. And yet this 28-year-old man just had you know, radiation to the brain and a hospital bill that now includes a CT scan. And it was totally unnecessary. So should we be questioning this? Well, the American College of Radiology says we should. This comes from the Choosing Wisely campaign. How many of you have heard of Choosing Wisely? Fantastic. Yeah, so Choosing Wisely campaign, American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation um, launched this in 2011. They've signed up now more than 60 societies to list five things within their own domain that, quote, patients and physicians should question. They now have spread to three different countries. Um, this year, they've got uh, nurses coming on board and physician assistants. So it's really taken off over the last couple years here. Um, and number one on the ACR list, don't do imaging for uncomplicated headaches. But we do it anyways. So why do we do this? Are we treating the patient in front of us? Or is something else going on? And then, as you can tell from the title of my talk, I'm going to ask you a really unfair question. How much does this all cost, anyways, for the patient, for the system? And if you're a physician like I am, you'd likely be stabbing in the dark. This comes from Bloomberg, where they said, you know, ask your physician how much that drug they just wrote you for will cost, and they'll have no idea. But it's not our fault. Right? Prices have traditionally been hidden from both clinicians and the public. Um, and there's lots of reasons for this. But we live in an age where this is all rapidly changing. So this is just a, and this is actually, I, I could update this slide pretty much every two weeks. There's new, uh, there are new initiatives, new um, campaigns, new businesses, especially where I live in San Francisco, right above Silicon Valley. Um, people are emailing all the time that they're starting these new apps, these new programs. We have a, there's a, the National Public Radio in California and this business called Clear Health Costs um, actually just started a program where they're uh, crowdsourcing mammogram costs across California. It's actually gotten a lot of press. And so they were telling patients, hey, when you get your bill in the mail from mammogram, give it to us and we'll upload it. And they're collecting the, the different bills from across the state and it's eye-opening. As you guys all are probably aware, just earlier this year, Medicare released how much it's paying doctors. A bit controversial. And it was you know, picked up in the New York Times, wrote all about it. So like it or not, the world is changing. And transparency is, is a, um, upon us. So today, over the next 40 minutes or so, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to start by talking about why clinicians should care about healthcare costs, if you don't already. Um, we then will talk about how we can address costs at the bedside, move on to how we sort of operationalize this, and I'll give you a single example from our high-value care program at UCSF, and we'll end with some conclusions, and we'll have time for questions. Sound good? All right. So why show clinicians cost? Most people are uncomfortable and come to a nice auditorium like this on Grand Rounds and start putting dollar signs on the board. We're not used to that. So why should we do it? There are a number of reasons, I believe, that we should show clinicians the cost. The first is, 
Um, it is a, we have a professional responsibility as physicians, as clinicians, to control healthcare resources judiciously. You may recall uh, the four tenets of medical ethics. So Harley mentioned I went to medical school at UCSD. At UCSD, on the very first day of medical school, we have a white coat ceremony. You guys have a similar thing here at Dartmouth? Yeah. And on that, that white coat ceremony, you know, they tell us about the four tenets, and they tell us about the privilege of wearing the white coat and first do no harm. We talk about patient autonomy, and I remember spending um, small group sessions and lots of time over the four years grappling with patient autonomy and what does that really mean. Um, we talk about doing good for our patients. But that fourth tenet, I don't believe we talked about as much. And that's social justice. The fact that we, as a profession, have a responsibility to provide social justice. And if we don't control healthcare resources judiciously, guess what? Eventually, someone else is going to. And we don't want that as physicians. So I think we do have a professional responsibility. And that's why we should start to talk about healthcare costs. The other reason is it's been well shown that clinicians lack basic understanding of costs. There's been lots of studies they followed around pediatric hospitalists, and they watched them write an order, and then they said, how much is that going to cost the system, the patient? I have no idea. They've asked outpatient docs. They've asked adult uh, hospitalists. Um, we don't know right, for reasons that we've discussed. And so we've got to start somewhere, and this may be that somewhere, starting to put costs on the board. The other reason is one that I know you guys are well aware of and hold dear to your heart, but we'll touch on today. There's an astounding amount of healthcare waste and unnecessary testing. Some of that was actually um, illustrated by the you know, Dartmouth Atlas, which really started to put this on the map and this variation and waste. But what I really want to do is take a bit of a different view from that today. And I want us to focus on why you should care because it's important to the patient in front of us. So we'll take a little bit of time talking about that, because I think that's what's really the thing that's been changing recently. All these other things we could have talked about for the last couple decades. So when you see a title like mine, you probably assume you're going to see the slide. You all can picture it, right? The slide with the GDP going through the roof. And you know there's numbers in the trillions. And 20% of GDP by 2020, and people ooh, and they ah, and they gasp in horror. And then we go to the emergency room and we scan the very next 29-year-old kid that we see come in the door. Why? Well, how many of you went to medical school to treat the GDP? No? Right? We went to medical school or nursing school or pharmacy school to treat the patient in front of us. And so while we care about bankrupting our country, while we care about uh, healthcare costs going through the roof, it doesn't really resonate with us as clinicians. If you're going to say it's you know, the population or it's the patient in front of me, I'm probably going to pick the patient in front of me. And that's probably the right answer most people would say. But healthcare costs do matter now more than ever to the patient in front of us. They're causing financial ruin. Turns out that healthcare bills are, if not the number one, one of the leading causes of personal bankruptcy in the United States. And unfortunately, that's probably not surprising to us. What may be surprising is that in this study, more than 3 quarters of personal bankrupters from medical bills were insured at the start of their illness. 
So when you look, you know, you're on the wards today, somebody may look insured, they may be insured, um, but they may not be shortly down the road. Now, obviously, all of this is rapidly changing with the Affordable Care Act that is, that is, uh, that is now um, enacted. However, the Affordable Care Act is not going to exactly fix this problem. In fact, more Americans than ever before in our history are on high deductible health plans. So that means that we, as physicians are, are uh, or actually they, as patients are responsible, they as patients are responsible for the first, you know, multiple thousand dollars that we spend on their behalf. Which is why just yesterday in Modern Healthcare, there was a, I thought, great article. It quotes me, so, you know. But um, <laughs> great article in Modern Healthcare talking about, they spoke to physicians across the country and the story was the same. Patients are starting to say, how much is this going to cost? Do I really need this? But patients who are on high deductible plans are the type of patients that didn't used to be stuck with the bill. And in fact, we can look next to your neighbor, Massachusetts. They happen to be years ahead of the rest of the country in enacting something that looks like the ACA. And in fact, <laughs> highly successful. 98% have insurance in Massachusetts. Amazing. But they're also years ahead of the rest of the country of going bankrupt. So turns out that since 98% have insurance, the amount of insured non-elderly adults reporting problems paying their medical bills has increased. So as I think I'm, I'm trying to impress, there are, healthcare costs are extremely important to our insured patients and becoming increasingly so. But it's easiest to see the harms, of course, in our uninsured patients. So I'd like us to hear from one. His name is Julian, Julian McCullough. He's a comedian. He uh, was uninsured, as many young, healthy men were in Boston, which is where he was living. Um, and he actually started to get severe abdominal pain. And he said, you know, I grew up in an uninsured family. We avoided the doctor at all costs. That's exactly what I was going to do. I knew I couldn't afford it, so I was going to tough it out. And he tried to tough it out. Eventually, the abdominal pain got so bad that he called his friend and said, i got to go to the ER. His friend drove him there. He went to Beth Israel. He says he really knew he was in trouble when he entered the emergency room waiting room. And he saw all the terribly sick looking people in the waiting room. And then they saw him and took him right back. You actually don't want to be taken right back when you get to the ER. He was sick. He had a ruptured appendix because he tried to tough it out. They resuscitated him and took him to surgery. And I'm going to let him tell the last minute of the story. So this comes from This American Life. So they finally, uh, on the fourth night, I go to surgery at like 2 a.m. I come out of it.
the bill for $45,000. And a white envelope like all the other envelopes. That should not come in a white envelope. That should come in a black envelope. It's all in cross on it. And when you open it, a picture of your hopes and dreams falls out. So, you know, he's a comedian, he's being funny. But it's actually a true story and not all that funny. If you've ever gotten a hospital bill in the mail, have any of you ever had a hospital bill arrive in the mail? Yeah? I, I got one from my institution, luckily it was for the, the birth of my son, but we got the hospital bill in the mail and it's itemized. And even when the balance on the bottom says you owe zero or you owe $100, you still look at that bill and it's, it's shocking. In fact, I, I, uh, about two months ago or so, I was flying across the country to, to give a talk somewhere to this uh, somewhere else, and I was sitting next to an 85-year-old guy on the plane. And um, I take out my computer, and I'm starting to work, and he says, oh, what do you do? And I'm thinking, oh, man, I'm trying to work. But I, I start telling him, and I, I just say, you know, I'm a hospitalist. I don't tell him I work on Casa Care or any, anything like that. I, I don't have my PowerPoint open. And he goes, oh, let me tell you, I was just hospitalized another hospital in San Francisco, and he starts telling me a story, but you know what the first thing that he wanted to tell me about his hospital stay? It wasn't how great the hospitalist was that took care of him. It wasn't how great it is that he's now better and on a plane flying across the country. It was, do you know how much that cost? I was there for pneumonia, I got a bill in the mail, and I have Medicare and they covered it, but this is insane. I was like, let me show you what I'm working on. <laughs> so even when you're well insured, this is, uh, this is concerning. This, by the way, is probably the longest most of you have ever looked at a hospital bill as a physician. It's important to the patients in front of us because they're starting to change their behaviors because of healthcare costs. So this comes from the Kaiser Family Foundation where they asked patients, not just Kaiser patients, the, the foundation's different. So they, they called patients and they said, how many of you or a member of your family in your household have done one of the following behaviors because of healthcare costs. Not for another reason, but because of costs. So how many put off, um, or I'm sorry, relied on home remedies or over-the-counter drugs instead of going to see a doctor? And you see more than a third. How many skipped dental care or checkups? About a third. Put off or postponed getting needed healthcare? 29%, like Mr. McCullough. Not filled a prescription, 24%. There's actually lots of research on this going back decades. This one, the not filling a prescription one. In fact, there were great personal stories and insights yesterday that I heard from the, the group I was hanging out with um, about not filling a prescription because of the healthcare costs. An, an article came out in Annals about two or three months ago where they looked at how many patients don't fill the index prescription for a medicine. So you know you spend all that time explaining to them, telling them about the new medicine, telling them why they should take it. How many do you think don't fill it? About a third. They didn't study about healthcare costs, but they did show that the more expensive the drug, the less likely the patient was to fill it. And the amazing thing about that, by the way, is that patients who don't fill their medicines because of cost, research shows they don't tell their physicians about that. They say, I'm embarrassed to tell them. Some of them in the study said, well, I don't think my doc can do anything about it. And some said, I don't think my doc cares. They're cutting pills in half or skipping doses of medicine to make it last twice as long, not telling you or their pharmacist. So more than half of our patients in the study have done one of these behaviors, at least one. Our patients care because they're starting to read about it more and more. 
It's on the front page of the New York Times now, above the fold, the $500 stitch. Um, they nailed a hospital across town for me in San Francisco on that. Luckily, somehow UCSF came out looking good. We totally dodged a bullet. Um, but they, they, you know, they're reading about this. This was the cover of Time Magazine, Why Medical Bills Are Killing Us. The first time Time Magazine devoted an entire section of the magazine on a single issue. It's like the longest article I think they've ever published. It's 28,000 words by Stephen Brill. And people who say, you know what, Chris, you're, you're showing hospital bills to people. I sit down with our interns at UCSF. We go over hospital bills of our patients. That doesn't matter. The hospital doesn't matter. Nobody pays the bill. Here's 28,000 words on why the hospital bill and the charge master matter. Real stories from people across the country. As the Daily Show joke, who reads Time Magazine anymore? Only people waiting in doctor waiting rooms. <laughs> so your patients are reading this. They're seeing this. And they're expecting us to do something about it. So I would argue that we have two reasons, two separate motivations, to consider costs as clinicians. The first is indeed the macroeconomic resource stewardship. That we're bankrupting our country. We need to take responsibility for this. We have a professional responsibility. Very important. But the second, I think, is more compelling to those of us who have those white coats on who are going to leave here and go right up to the floor and see patients. And that is we should care because it's important to the patients in front of us, the financial safety of the patient in front of us. And for too long, our profession has acted like these are completely diametrically opposed motivations. I'm either taking care of society or I'm taking care of my patient. And the truth is, sometimes that's the case. And those are going to be difficult ethical questions for us to grapple with. But there's lots of low-hanging fruit. There are lots of areas where these motivations overlap. We can start there. I'll give you a very simple example, generic drugs. Generic drugs, good for society because it's cheaper no matter who the payer is, whether it's the government or private insurance. Turns out that brand name drugs, the leading driver of increasing uh, premiums in private insurance. Um, also good for the patient because it's uh, usually cheaper. And studies have shown that patients oftentimes are more likely to use meds if they're written for generics because it being cheaper. And you say, well, of course, we do great at that. Maybe you do here at Dartmouth, I don't know. But it turns out as in, across the country, we do not do great at that. So a study came on GM Internal Medicine. They asked physicians, how many of you, quote, sometimes or often prescribe brand name drugs when a generic is available? So you got a good generic available, you prescribe brand name drug anyways. Four out of 10 physicians said they, they often, uh, sometimes or often do that. Who do you think they blamed it on? Yeah, that's good. Most people say pharmaceutical. No, they didn't blame it for it. They blamed it on the patients. Right? They said, my patients come in, they ask for Lipitor, so I acquiesce to their demands. You say, that's interesting, because six of your colleagues don't. So what's different about you guys? Turns out you're more likely to have pharmaceutical relationships. So you know, you're more likely to have them come and give you lunch, take you to dinner. Say a pharmaceutical rep is your number one source of continuing medical education. And this is a big problem. So if we look back at 2011, eight statins on the market, five of them available as generics. And yet in that year, there were more prescriptions written for Lipitor than for generic simvastatin. 
Now, there are times when that's warranted, but it surely does not outweigh the number of times that you could go with generic simvastatin. And this one example, US primary care docs, writing for brand name statins as opposed to generic statins, is estimated to cost in excess $5.8 billion every year in annual spending. Another example came out uh, a year or so ago. They looked at VA versus Medicare diabetic patients, both government payers, right, VA, Medicare. They had similar quality metrics across the groups, so similar quality in care, which was cheaper. VA, of course, why? Because the VA has a formulary and they make you use generics. Medicare does not. And so the VA actually has a great generic rate. In my home state of California, Kaiser, similarly, they have like a 98% generic rate when a generic is available. But Medicare clearly does not. And this gets us to healthcare waste. $750 billion is the Institute of Medicine estimate. This has been looked at by different groups. So um, actually, uh, Berwick and Hackbarth had uh, published an article in JAMA where they looked at the ranges. 750 billion, somewhere in the middle of the ranges, no matter how you determine this um, number. And if you look at this pie, you'll see there are lots of reasons for the $750 billion. $750 billion, by the way, kind of numbs my brain. I, I don't, that's too big of a number for me to even know what that means. That's 30 cents on every dollar that we spend in healthcare. So one third of what we do is not making people healthier. It's $100 billion more than the entire Department of Defense budget in 2009. We we're fighting two wars at the time. And, and you know, um, so you say, well, good, we spend more on healthcare than war. No, no, wasted healthcare. It didn't make anybody healthier. One and a half times as much as we spend on infrastructure in this country. Roads, railways, bridges. Pretty big number. And you look at this, like I said, and there's lots of things that cause this. And you say, well, what can I do about that? You know, I don't commit fraud. Good, don't commit fraud. <laughs> I can't do much about the fact that prices are too damn high. I don't set the prices. True. But when I look at this, I'm drawn to the biggest piece of the pie, unnecessary services, $210 billion every year. And that's the part that every day I go to work and type an order into the computer, I can either contribute or take away from as an on frontline clinician. So yes, to attack the $750 billion, it's gonna take an all hands on deck moment. It's gonna require things like payment reform and tort reform and different mechanisms. But it is not to say, well, unless those things happen, nothing's gonna change. We have a big piece of this. So we'll take it back to the patient in front of us again. So you go out to clinic today, and you see the next patient coming in has a complaint of low back pain. Sound familiar? Reasonable, likely? Part of the reason I became a hospitalist. But. <laughs> this patient was from UCSF, Mr. P, 45-year-old guy, came into the clinic, said he had low back pain. You know, he. Uh, he basically wasn't sure what he had done, but he had seemed to tweak his back. It's, it was hurting pretty bad. He uh, hasn't been able to play basketball for the last two weeks. He, you know, you go through all the, all the red flags. He doesn't have high-risk behaviors, no fevers, no neurologic symptoms, incontinence, so on and so forth. Neuro exam, he's got lots of tenderness right over his back, but otherwise pretty normal. Um, he probably didn't look like that, but. <laughs> <laughs> 
just guessing. <laughs> so what are you going to do? Oh, I'm sorry. Forgot the main thing. Uh, he came in with a chief complaint of, my wife says I need to get an MRI. <laughs> so we published an article in JAMA, a viewpoint article, last year. We called it First Do No Financial Harm. And then we make a couple arguments about how now some of the things I talked about, about how medical bills are a problem. And so therefore, if it's important to our patients and we're causing this, um, we should think about taking that on as a responsibility. One of the things we point out there in there, though, is that you know some physicians, and many of you may be sitting here thinking, that this is just a reality. Financial adverse effects are a known and unavoidable harm of our medical care. I'm just the doctor. I do what I got to do. And if they get a bill in the mail two weeks later, I had nothing, you know, that's just a side effect of what I do. But you know what, that sounds kind of familiar, at least to me, to what we all were saying as a profession not too long ago about central line infections. So look, I got to put in a central line, a central line and a certain percentage of people are going to get an infection and there's nothing I can really do about it. It's an unfortunate side effect of what I do. And yet we now know, of course, that there are specific steps we can take as clinicians to avoid the infection. Now, like central lines, there are times where you know you're you're in the ER, you're in a code, so you just put it in, right? There are times where we cannot address healthcare costs, and we probably shouldn't. But there are plenty of other opportunities where we actually can and should, and so we should start to learn how to take the steps to help our patients navigate and avoid this harm. We point out four steps that we that we propose. The first is considering the fact that patients are not telling us about their problems paying for their medications, that they're not bringing it up, that they have the impression that we don't care, we should start to screen for financial harm. Simple questions. Are you worried about how your medical care will be paid for? Are you having trouble paying for your medications at home? I've been asked by physicians, do you really want me to ask this question too? I've got so many things to do in 15 minutes. You don't have to. You know, we, we screen for all kinds of things. You can figure out, does the nurse do that on intake? Who asked this question? But we can start bringing it up and addressing it just like we screen for other things. And you say, well, that's uncomfortable. I don't know if my patients are going to like me bringing this up. Well, we screen for domestic violence, screen for alcohol abuse. We ask all kinds of uncomfortable questions of our patients because it's important. It affects their care. But will it make a difference? Turns out it probably will. So discussions about costs, if your doctor talks about costs, the odds ratio that uh, you'll be able to prescribe a cheaper medication is five. Just last night, I brought up this dinner lap. Like I said, it was really great because I heard all these stories. And um, you know, one of the medical students was telling me about a uh, uh, Zyrtec, I think it was, or no, a nasal spray, a nasal spray. And they were prescribed the brand name nasal spray. And they went to fill it. And it cost a lot of money. And they said, well, forget this. It was helping me, but I'm not going to fill it. Didn't think anything about it. A year later or so, sees the doctor mentions, they're like, oh, I'll just write you for the generic. Goes and fills it for cheap. And you know, and th this happens all the time. The doc had asked or mentioned, hey, there's alternatives. Let me know if this is going to cost too much. Would that have been different? And people are not just not filling, by the way, their Zyrtex or their antihistamines. Or, you know, they're actually not filling. These are, the studies show diabetics not filling their metformin or their insulin. Post-MI patients not filling their beta blockers. But 
we have to be careful. So step two, I'd say, is that we use universal precautions. That is to say, we can't then say, well, we're going to screen for cost. And then if people say, yes, I'm having trouble paying for it, we say, OK, well, then you don't get an MRI. Universal precautions means we don't know who. So it came out like, we don't know who's going to have hep C or HIV. And so if there's a risk of coming in bodily contact, we're going to use precautions to protect ourselves and them. Um, so similarly, I would say we, as physicians, the study show, don't actually know who is going to be stuck with the bill. In fact, a lot of patients don't know what they're going to be stuck with, what their deductible is. And so what we do is we actually behave as if anybody could be stuck with the bill. It's very simple. It means if they need the MRI, you get it and you help them figure out how to do that. And if they don't, you don't. Sounds easy, right? But we all know or probably have heard others say stuff like, well, they're insured. What's the harm? Just get the MRI. We can't do that anymore. Right? Mr. P is insured. His wife wants him to get an MRI. Let's just do it. We have to assume that anybody could be stuck with the bill and we just do the right thing. Step three, I think, is we need to understand financial ramifications and value of recommendations. And you say, well, that's not fair. The third slide you put up was the, you know, the costs hidden behind the Band-Aids, and we don't know. First of all, that's all changing rapidly, as I mentioned. So we will know about costs. There are a lot of tools coming out to help us determine that. But I would argue you don't need to know the exact dollars and cents. You need to have a reasonable sense of the financial ramifications and value. So how many of you use Yelp or Zagat Guide? More of you, right? Um, Yelp figured this out. Zagat figured it out before that, a long time ago. right? They figured out that um, you don't have to tell me how much a steak costs at that restaurant. You have to give me a general sense of quality and a general sense of cost, and it changes my behavior. And so I would say if we have a general sense, well, an MRI is twice expensive as a, as a CT. And it's, re and it's valuable in these situations. Now, realize that this is all situation dependent, right? So if you think about Yelp, usually I want you know, lots of stars and not a lot of dollar signs. Two weeks ago, my brother got engaged to his girlfriend, and we wanted to take him out for a nice dinner. And for that, I wanted the value was I wanted a nice restaurant. I was going for the $3, $4 sign restaurant, just like an expensive test is reasonable in the right situation. So I've been talking about this for at least a year now. And a couple months ago, I was on wards, and my intern comes running up with a stack of outside hospital records. And they're like, Chris, Chris, you got to see this. And I'm thinking, oh, no. <laughs> it can never be good when they're coming up, running up with a stack of outside hospital records. Facts to us, by the way, in 2014. But that's a whole other talk. <laughs> they pull up from the outside hospital this, and this uh, you know, this antibiotic sensitivity, this culture data. You guys have all seen this, right? Do you see the difference on this one? This outside hospital had dollar signs next to it. Guess what? This made it so we could hand this to the first year med student if we wanted to and say, which antibiotic do you want to pick? <laughs> you know whether it's sensitive, you know whether it's resistant, and you know the cost. And, get, and I don't have to know, well, what kind of insurance do they have? What's their copay? What's their deduct? Low-tech solution. I don't have to wait for an iPhone app. <clears throat> These are simple solutions, and they exist. And we can, you can extrapolate this to many different uh, decisions in medicine. 
And what we're talking about here, to be clear, is value. So I am not advocating for cheap healthcare. Right? I don't want cheap sushi. I don't want cheap healthcare. What I want is value. Value is quality divided by cost. And for a long time, for the last decade, the, the hospitalist movement, I think, has hammered the quality improvement thing. And that's great. And if people came to your hospital and said, do you provide high quality care at Dartmouth? I'm sure you can say yes, confidently, and point to lots of different reasons why you believe that to be true. They say, aha, but do you provide high value health care? You may have a tougher time answering that, that question. I would. And because value is, is it worth the money, what we're doing? It's how we think about every other decision. But it hasn't been traditionally how we've thought about health care. Quality over cost. Like I said, this is dependent on the situation. So MRI, expensive test. Cost doesn't change, but the value of that test changes based on the situation. <coughs> MRI, very high value test to rule out an epidural abscess. Very low value test for Mr. P's back pain. Easy for us to sit here in a conference room and talk about. But let's reflect for a few minutes on what we're really up against. So what I want to do is I'm going to play a one-minute video clip. This is a, a short snippet that we've taken from a longer module. This comes from an organization I work with, a nonprofit called Casa Care, um, started by Neil Shaw when he was a resident at, uh, he's an OBGYN um, at Harvard now. When he was an OBGYN intern, he started Casa Care because he had a similar situation as I did where he said, this is crazy. What's going on around here with all this overuse? Um, and we've created these modules. They're available for free at teachingvalue.org. Um, and so what we're going to do is we're going to listen to a, uh, this is our intern. Next to him, or Polly's the medical student. And then we'll see Paul, who's playing the resident. I don't know. What do you think, Paul? This is Ben Wine that we talked about earlier. Yeah. You can try to manage this conservatively, but if you're even thinking of getting an CT, I just go ahead and order. I mean, it takes forever to get a scan around here, plus you'll feel better knowing she won't bounce back, and she'll feel like she's got what she wanted. So it's a win win. Yeah, but I mean, CT is a lot of money. Is that really cost effective to do with it? Yeah, I've heard CT scans are really expensive. How much do they cost anyway? I have no idea. Call the bill and defer that. Even if we know how much it costs, it's not what the patient's paying for the CT. I mean, she has insurance, right? Yeah. Great. So what's the problem? Look, I know we're supposed to be thinking about costs, but it's not like we're actually equipped to deal with these types of decisions. I mean, no one's going to pat you on the back for pension pennies. Our responsibility is for the patient. I found this ACR appropriateness criteria. Well, it's, like it's up to you, but you may want to check with your time first. So here's the thing about that video clip. In one minute, there's actually 10 reasons in a minute that residents overorder tests. And you know what they not are? They're, those reasons are not. They're not fee for service. Residents are not paid fee for service. It's not fear of malpractice. Residents are very protected from malpractice. Not 100% so, but reasonably so. And yet, when I give a similar talk like this, it depends. If I'm in a medical school, everybody says, great, this is awesome, I'm on board. And then I go into the trenches and give this at a CME course, 
And people invariably stand up and say, that's nice, but what about malpractice? That's nice, but what about fee-for-service? There are lots of other things that we need to address here. We have a culture, the hidden curriculum, where we talk about something in a room like this, and then we get out on the floor or in the emergency room and we say, well, this is what really is done. This is how it really works. Culture is going to beat our strategy any day. So if we're going to change the situation, we need to think about strategy. We need to think about systemic solutions, indeed. We also need to address our culture. And one way we do that is we start changing that conversation. So how are we changing that conversation? I think a number of ways. One is that the Casa Care organization that I mentioned actually started an essay contest a few years ago. So let's just start to collect the stories. And so we asked people from across the country, give us your stories, patients, physicians, caregivers, family members, just tell us their stories of healthcare costs. And we've collected more than 500 stories. They've been featured actually by pretty much every major media outlet. They've been highlighted in the New England Journal. They were actually used in a recent Institute of Medicine report. And um, actually just yesterday when I got off my plane, I got from our McGraw-Hill the, the cover, mock-up cover, so I thought I'd throw this in there. They're going to be featured in our book that's coming out next year from McGraw-Hill, An Understanding Value-Based Healthcare. We're changing the conversation by telling the stories of, from the front lines of what this is really, how this is affecting our patients. We're also doing it through academic journals. So GM Internal Medicine, we've launched a new series uh, that started this past, past year, past January, called Teachable Moments. Brief articles that highlight, quote, stories from the front lines of when overtreatment or overtesting leads to potential harm. Great thing about this series, I think, I'm, I'm one of the editors for it, so, but the great thing I think about the series is that, one, the first author must be a trainee. So a medical student, a resident, a fellow, a pharmacy student. The second or third author, of course, can be a senior author, provides mentorship. The first author must be a trainee telling a story that they saw. Articles are short, and they tie the anecdotes to evidence. So you tell the story and then you have to tie in the evidence to support why that was not the right thing to do. Um, I, my intern went home and wrote this. I'm sure many of you guys could go home tonight and, and write 500 words on something you saw in the past week or two. Um, accepting articles, we, we actually have been publishing uh, one or two every uh, issue of JAMA Internal Medicine um, for this year. So my remaining time, I want to talk about how do you operationalize these ideals in the hospital. This came about because, you know, I, so I started this curriculum when I was a resident at UCSF, looking at hospital bills, talking about costs, getting up, telling people why they should care. And then I went to graduate, and my boss, Bob Walker, um, he, he sat me down. He said, you know, Chris, you're a resident leader. That's great, but it's kind of like being a childhood actor. Doesn't mean you'll make it in the adult world. <laughs> you can't just talk about what you're doing. You're going to have to do something about it now. So what are you going to do? And so we started uh, to try to operationalize these ideals. Let's bring it back to the patient in front of us. So a patient from UCSF, and they saw a 65-year-old woman with COPD. Uh, this is Miss J. She actually was recently diagnosed by her PMD with COPD. She was given inhalers. She says she's been, quote, trying to use them, but she's noticed that she had increasing wheezing and productive cough. And so she ended up coming into the ED, where we treated her as we treat all our COPD patients. Didn't ask her, by the way, do you know how to use your inhaler? We started on continuous NEBS. We gave her a big slug of IV solumedrol, chest x-ray, looked pretty clear. 
And so they said, admit to medicine, and on the way up, why not put her through the tube of truth? <laughs> and we looked at this case, and one of the things, so, so we can look at, you know, which sort of or which sort of uh, steroids should she have, what dose, IV, oral, should she have gone through SCT? But one thing I want to quickly touch on, we looked at NEBS versus inhalers. And it turns out there's systematic reviews going back decades that show no, no uh, significant difference between a nebulized treatment and an inhaler in any efficacy outcome in any patient group. They've looked at outpatients, they've looked at inpatients, surgical patients, medical patients, ICU patients, ventilated patients. Ventilator, perfect spacer for an inhaler to turn <coughs> um, And so they've looked at this, and they've actually said, people were like, no way. You know, the, the neb, it's like misting, it's like this big thing, this wimpy little inhaler. And so they radio labeled the drug. And indeed, in patients, adults with obstructive disease, Radio-labeled drug, it gets to the right place. They've measured symptoms, FEV1s. Actually, a lot of research on this. But what's the quality argument? Well, my friend Valerie Press and colleagues at University of Chicago took patients who are prescribed inhalers. They said, show me how you use that thing. 86% of them misuse their inhaler, if you watch them. What I love is I looked closely at the table in the article. More than one of them didn't take the cap off. <laughs> problem. But, and this is the key point, all of them, 100% of these people were able to achieve mastery with very short instruction. But what happened to Miss J? Well, she got around the clock NEBS every four hours for three days. On that last day, we stood around the halls and probably went something like my intern said, hey, Miss J is doing better. I think we can send her home. I probably said something like, well, she's still on around the clock NEBS. I don't know, maybe. All right, let's give her an inhaler, transition her, and send her out. Never really dedicated inpatient inhaler teaching to her. It's hard to ask, you know, we should be doing this, of course, in our clinics, but it's hard to say, well, you know, we want you to do better inhaler teaching while you're explaining what COPD is and, and explaining how to use the inhaler. It's really difficult. We have to do that, but very difficult. I had her for four days. I had every four hours a respiratory therapist. So at UCSF, the RT has to sit in the room and set it up and watch the NEB go. So I had a respiratory therapist getting tachycardic as albuterol is misting in the air instead of teaching our patient how to use an inhaler every four hours. Talk about a missed opportunity. And this was a gap between what we could be doing and what we were doing. And then we looked at her bill, $50,000 for her first COPD exacerbation. Now, some things, the room, $7,200. I don't know if you've been to UCSF, there's like views of the Golden Gate Bridge from the room. Super expensive, very nice. <laughs> I can't change that. Probably could have transitioned her in inhalers earlier, maybe got her out a day earlier, possibly. But at any rate, would you look at this, she didn't need that CT scan. And respiratory services, $4,600. What if we transitioned her to inhalers at 24 hours? Could save at least $2,800, say drop in the bucket. Yes, but across UCSF, UCSF indirect costs, I know we haven't gotten much into charges costs and all that, it's another talk, but direct costs spent a million dollars, more than a million dollars to treat our non-ICU patients for uh, NEBS. Just on the medicine service, hospital-wide three and a half million. So we created a campaign, we called it NEBS No More After 24. The idea was, the studies show, you can start patients on inhalers from the minute they hit the ER door, but, we're UCSF, patients are sicker, our patients weren't in the study, they're being admitted by one intern and passed off to, you guys have all heard these same arguments, I guarantee it. 
right? So we said, fine, you get 24 hours. Get them stabilized, get them on the floor, get them to the day team in the morning. And within 24 hours, get them transitioned to their inhaler and have respiratory therapy teach them. I went to a meeting, a room like this, with 50 RTs in it. I thought to say, hey, what do you guys think about this? Should we do this? I was worried that they were going to be like, you know, throwing tomatoes at me. Instead, they actually cheered. They said, we're running around giving all these stupid devs. We'd much rather be teaching. And so we created this campaign. That's Dr. Talmadge King. He's our chair of medicine. He's also a prominent pulmonologist. Um, and we asked him to pose for this poster. Somehow got him to do it. Um, and we have these hanging up around the hospital. We were able to have the number of NEBs provided on our high security medical floor during the pilot phase here. And we've now rolled this out medical center wide and working on um, creating system, systematic changes, changing the way the order is written in our EPIC system. Now, our projected savings are about a quarter million dollars annually on the one board based on our pilot. And that became the flagship program of our high value care committee, chaired by myself, a physician, and Maria Novalero, who's a financial administrator. What we did here, the simple innovation was, we took the financial administrators who were meeting across the street and the clinicians who were meeting on, in the hospital talking about quality improvement, and we sat all at the same table. We've got fellows, we've got residents, we've got hospitalists, um, project managers, administrators. And we said, we're going to address things in our control in our hospital that will both simultaneously increase quality and decrease costs. If it does just one or the other, I'm not saying that that's necessarily wrong, but it doesn't belong to my committee. So we're going to address things that are low-hanging fruit, that improve quality and decrease costs at the same time. And the point is the NEBS became our flagship project. NEBS may or may not be a project here. It depends on lots of complications, how you pay your respiratory therapist, whether they have to stay in the room. It may not actually save you money. But that point is that you have to look at your own practices locally. It's nice to look at things like choosing wisely, but it doesn't always translate to exactly what we're doing here. And so this is a system to do that. We've identified a number of targets that we're addressing, um, that we've been addressing over the last two years. And we just published an article in Journal of Possible Medicine about our early experience with this. And I'll close, and then we'll ask some questions. We'll close with um, what we've learned. It's kind of a simple lesson that we've learned from quality improvement over the past decade, but I think is really important to apply here. And that is that there are, to address this problem, to address this culture overrun with overuse, we have to attack it from many different angles. Because people have said to me, well, is it the, the cost awareness talks? Is it the posters? Is it, you know, what is it that, that's changing? What's the, the secret sauce? I would say, just like in QI work, we've learned it's all of the above. And so our cost of care organization came up with this cost acronym. We said, if you're going to try to change behavior, you have to address culture, you have to address oversight, systems, and training all at the same time. To illustrate the point, let's think about hand washing. Hand washing was realized to be good for our patients a long time ago. It actually saved lives, and they showed it convincingly, and we couldn't get doctors to wash their hands. And only recently, actually, have we moved the needle significantly on this. I mean, there was 150 years or so there where we didn't do much. And now we've moved the needle. Why? Well, pretty much overnight, not too long ago, in hospitals around the country, we started strategically placing um, hand gel. So we had a systems change. We thought strategically we created it easier to do the right thing. So providing evidence, me getting up and telling you cost for a problem and all this doesn't actually change behaviors. It's necessary, I think, but insufficient. 
We have to tie it, one, to the patient in front of us, talk about you're harming this patient, give examples of that. We have to create systems that make it easier to do the right thing. And then we have to make a culture where if I don't wash my hands and Brad Sharp in my hospital sees me, I'm going to be embarrassed. Are you embarrassed if you ordered that CT for the patient in the ED? That wasn't necessary, probably not. And so we need to address all these things. We need to think about it in that way. We have a very short commentary in JAM Internal Medicine that I think is uh, released on Monday where we make this exact argument, uh, where we talk more about this. So thank you very much. Like I said, it's really such an honor for me to be here. And I welcome all your questions. Um, and I have a long plane ride back, so you can tweet at me or email me if, if uh, there are more questions that come up. Thank you. basically that you know we need to think in the long term that when you talk about value sometimes an investment up front can actually save costs down the line and so we can, we shouldn't just be looking short term and shifting costs and in fact there's been studies that shown that actually as we've decreased length of stay and decreased inpatient acute hospital costs we've actually shifted the cost of the post acute care um, so really important point and two things I'll say on that one is that this is why I think it's important that we have clinicians with financial administrators or experts, some sort of expertise to look at this. Because we need to point out the areas, but we actually need expertise to think about the cost ramifications. And, and I don't think most of us clinicians have that. Um, but it's important that we have clinicians at the table, because when we look at, so financial administrator, Marina Valero, when she looked at our thing, she brought up that. She's like, well, we spent a million dollars on this, not a problem. She brought up factor eight. And so we spent a lot of money on that. And we looked, and we're like, well, actually, we need that for hemophiliacs, right? So the, you need both expertise putting our heads together to come up with those areas. Um, the other thing is we, uh, I've worked a little bit with a, our pediatric chief resident from last year who really has worked on that model too because in pediatrics that's even more of a pro issue. Like if I invest up front in pediatrics, am I going to have lifelong benefits and how do we figure out that value? Um, I have no amazing tricks on how to do that. Um, but like I said, I think that it's a great point to bring up that we are very thoughtful about that, that we're not just shifting costs or saving money for the hospital but shifting the cost to the patient or the payer or something else. Thank you. Sure. Um, I'd like to ask a macro system question. Um, I noticed that the author of some of the articles you cited are proponents of a single-payer health insurance plan. Um, and I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about how a <coughs> national health program or single-payer would have an impact on value. Yeah. 
Um, thank you. Great question about single-payer uh, insurance plan. You know, I think that if we go back to that pie of the Institute of Medicine, $750 billion, there's a big piece of that is inefficiency in the system and overhead. Um, and they've looked at this, you know, we spend a lot of money dealing with lots of different, we have to hire people to deal with all the different paperwork and different insurance programs. We don't know what, who's covered for what. It clearly provides a lot of complexity in our system. And if you look at programs like Kaiser in California, who insures, uh, who makes a, uh, a contract with CalPERS and insures thousands of people all at once, their overhead is less than 1% on that contract. Um, so I think it would clearly improve value, however, um, it I don't know how politically uh, sustainable you know, trying to go to a single payer is, so we may have to work outside of that system. Um, and I, I think that there are ways that we can, I, I don't think it's right for us to sit around and all say, well, if we had a single payer, this would all be better. I don't think it would all be better, number one. Um, I think that's pretty clear. Um, and number two, I think that we're gonna have to deal with reality, which is that we need to do something about it now. And I don't think sitting around waiting for single payer is a good idea. But I, I, do think, I do think that it would improve value by decreasing overhead, by kind of streamlining, and also making it easier for all of us to know the, the financial ramifications of our treatments. So uh, great, great talk. Uh, two, com two questions. So one's really building on Kathy's point about time. And that is, time is sometimes not ordering a test. It takes much, much longer than ordering a test. There was a great editorial or piece by Lisa Rosenbaum in the New England Journal about a year ago. I'd like you to talk about that. And then the second thing about quality is right now patient reported outcomes are a large portion of quality. And I think there was a study with back pain which showed that if you get the MRI, at six months the outcomes are no different, but the patients are happier. So yeah, it's interesting. Uh, two two things there. The, the first, the Lisa Rosenbaum, are you talking about? There was one. She's written a lot of great things. She's she's fantastic. I looked at this. Um, what I think you're referring to is called the whole, whole ball game, where they talk about value looks different from the eye of the beholder. She's trying to talk somebody out of a cardiac cath. It took an hour and a half. Ah, yeah. I think that was in the yeah that was in the New Yorker. I think the, the, that specific one. But at any rate, you're right. Um, so oftentimes, explaining to Mr. P why he doesn't need that MRI is going to take a lot longer than just writing the MRI, and that's a major barrier. Well, you're also not reimbursed for explaining it. You're reimbursed for getting a test. Um, and so I agree that that's a big barrier, and we need to think we need to provide support and system solutions to that if we're going to expect this to happen. I, I, I think that's absolutely true. Um, also, there's the idea that you know in the emergency room it may save money to go ahead and get the CT front rather than sit around and watch someone for many hours having to do abdominal exams. Um, so it, it gets to sorry your name was Kathy sorry, yeah Kathy's point that we have to really be sophisticated in how we start to think about the the, the value implications. The MRI one I'll, I'll touch on briefly, which is to say that you know the studies that I've seen actually with MRIs is that um, patients who get MRIs uh, the outcomes are no different as you mentioned. In fact, there are some downstream effects that are negative. So actually when we find, so as you probably know, if you take people and you randomly MRI their backs, um, you'll actually find abnormalities in healthy patients without back pain just as often as you'll find it in patients with back pain. And when you do that and you tell people about the abnormalities you found on the MRI, they actually have um, increased worry. They have a decreased sense of their own health status. Um, and so I, I think in a lot of ways they're, they, uh, are not uh, more satisfied. I don't know that specific, I should look at that specific study about the satis satisfaction. Um, they've looked at this in antibiotic use, which is the other one, because people will say, well, my patient's happier if I give them antibiotics. Um, some are, but it's actually a minority. If you, what they're really happy about is if you actually spend the time to address their concerns. 
And they've shown that. Communication, yes, time, which you need, yes. But communication and time gave much more benefit than writing a prescription. So you're pointing out lots of important barriers. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to dismiss them, but yeah. Dan, last question. Um, so um, insurance companies are sort of the fed noir here um, in many, many ways. But um, one area that physicians find particularly troublesome is prior approvals. Um, but it, I'm asking a question in sort of an unbiased way. Do you think that prior approvals are actually an improvement in value, or do you think it's just a waste of money? <laughs> I got so close to getting out of here. <laughs> it's, no, it's, it's a great question about prior auth. I mean, it is the bane of our existence, right? Filling out paperwork and, and having insurance companies. Now, there, it, there is evidence to show, like I said, oversight is one of our cost things. I do think that there's a role for some sort of oversight um, and, and uh, helping determine what is reasonable, what's not. Um, it would be much better if we created those systems ourselves and we were oversight and, and you know, controlling ourselves. And if we were able to do that, then maybe we could forego prior auths. The evidence probably says that prior authorizations do indeed improve value by decreasing unnecessary services. Um, but whether it's worth the, the pain and the cost, I, I think is totally, you know, the joy in practice and the time it takes and all that, whether it actually pays off, I think is a totally reasonable discussion. Um, but I, I uh, I, I would much prefer to see us regulating ourselves uh, on that issue. Okay, like I said, I, I welcome your emails or anything. I, I would uh, thank you. Thanks.